Sagar and Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Now, before we jump into the episode with Joe Lonsdale, reminder to rate the podcast five stars. As we mentioned, if you leave us a written five-star review and you email a screenshot to realignmentpod at gmail.com, we will answer your question right here on the air. So we got a bunch of responses after our biology episode on top of the ones we got for our Marco Rubio episode. So we're going to take them as before, one at a time. So today's question is from William, and it is, what, if anything, can the American right learn from other right-wing parties in Europe and Canada, for example, with Boris Johnson? And what I would firstly say is that anyone looking to see the answer to this question needs to go back to our interview with Nick Timothy, who was the chief of staff um, to the prime minister of the United Kingdom, Theresa May, from and before Brexit. So I think he has a lot of really interesting thoughts on that. But yeah, Sagar, what do you think? I mean, there's so much that we can learn, I think, from Boris Johnson in particular, and actually Duda as well, as the as he mentions in the uh, in the question. So look, I mean, what the European right has done is exactly what I've talked about for so long, which is they have aligned with the social positions of their populace. And then they have pursued economic policy, which is largely distributive to their entire population which entails a lot of different things, as in strengthening their safety nets, as in industrial policy in order to boost the productive sectors of their economy. This is something which is just so completely basic, but has a lot of enemies here in the United States. And why does it have enemies? Well, look, there's some of it has to do with kind of the uniqueness of the way that our economy is structured and how it's come to be. But I think a lot of the reason why is because of moneyed interests. I think that the way that our economy and so much more in the story of financialization and the ways that so many people have gone in order to protect the wealth and power that they've accumulated over the last 45 years is what's stopping any right-wing party here in the United States from emerging that might be able to emulate Europe and Canada. Nick Timothy and I actually talked about this in that podcast episode. Like I said, I really hope that you guys go back and you listen to it. And he was like, look, we just have a lot less money in our politics here. And I think that that makes a big difference. And frankly, I think I couldn't agree with him more. Yeah. And I think what's so helpful here, there's a lot of confusion on this issue, right? Because I think when people sort of look at the European right, they sort of say, hey, the European right, they're sort of, you know, a little more socially liberal. Obviously in the UK, you didn't have sort of big fights about abortion or gay marriage in the same context. So they focus on the social side, but they ignore the fiscal side of this question. Because I think the key thing here is that what the European right has been able to do, especially in the UK, is they've been really able to win over working class voters from the labor left by focusing on fiscal issues. So they're not sort of coming in the way you sort of see in the US sort of focusing on just sort of defunding Obamacare or just sort of focusing on sort of right to work policies. And and once again, like we're not saying that you can't be fiscally conservative. We're not saying that you shouldn't care at all about the debt and the deficits. We're just also saying that if you want to put together a winning political coalition, the idea that the way you're going to do that is by being socially liberal and and while still sort of being fiscally conservative and also sort of like anti-worker is just ridiculous and it's not actually a winning coalition so the takeaway here is focus on your coalition actually focus on what's getting you 50 plus one that isn't going to be sort of a traditional 2014 style republicanism all right so let's move into the episode so today we've got joe lonsdale he's a co-founder of palantir and he was a venture capitalist at 8vc we're going to be talking about his opposition to this facebook boycott and the broader consequences for the public square 
Now, we're obviously in the middle of a couple of really big fights about big tech. We just had those big hearings where, you know, anybody who watches me on Rising knows I think the Republicans really embarrass themselves. One of the things I really appreciate about Joe is that he's a very libertarian guy. He's somebody who's strongly, staunchly opposed to a lot of the economic policy that Marshall and I might be more in favor of, but he's a very honest broker. You can see that in the discussion that we have here about China and TikTok. And Marshall, it's crazy. I mean, right after we taped this episode, the Trump administration announced that they're going to force ByteDance, which is the Chinese Communist Party-controlled company that owns TikTok, to sell it, which is a huge victory for people like us who have been kind of beating the drum on the national security threat there for a long time. And it shows to show that Joe is one of the only courageous people in Silicon Valley who would even say that, yeah, it, 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 he even said in our episode, it would be right to ban TikTok, given the fact that China has blatantly does not, China blatantly does not allow U.S. companies to do business over there. That is not something that you're going to see a lot of people there say because they're afraid of Chinese retaliation. So I deeply, deeply respect him both for standing up for free speech at Facebook and for standing up, you know, for his country. Yeah, and so this episode is actually a episode that we did with the Lincoln Network who sponsors this show. I think it's a perfect illustration of what we're trying to do here. We're talking about everything from big tech to free speech to whether these big platforms that everyone's all sort of in a hullabaloo about, whether they really matter and whether or not these sort of decisions about the sort of boycott, whether they relate to bigger issues in our society. So I think we're really excited to do this. And by the way, if you're looking to see more of these style conversations with Joe, please please, please go to rebootconference.org where you can see the Reboot 2020 conference that Sagar and I are going to participate and really headline after the 2020 election. I think there are so many different ways that the debates about big tech and about free speech and about conservative bias and about the power that these companies sort of hold all combines together here. I think we're going to see from moving forward that so many of these episodes are really going to circle around these debates, what power, who wields it, what it means. There's so much there. So let's dive into the interview and we're really pumped to see this. Well, firstly, Joe, welcome to our first ever Realignment Lincoln Network crossover event. We're happy to have you here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to see you, yeah. Joe. So, Joe, obviously, for those who haven't heard of you in the attendee set here, you are at 8VC, a venture capital firm in San Francisco. You co-founded, among other things, Palantir and a couple other companies. But the reason I wanted to talk with you today is obviously your provocative op-ed that you put in the uh, Washington Post. Yeah, I'm surprise, sorry. surprise. Arguing that the current or ongoing Facebook boycott is an actual force for illiberalism. Quick question. Did you write that headline yourself? Uh, it's about courage, I believe it said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a yeah, right. yes. yeah, I was pretty obsessed with the whole idea that everyone's talking about justice and injustice right now, which injustice is a very important classical virtue. But in order to achieve justice, you also have to have courage, another one of the classical virtues. And I, I don't see a lot of courage in today's society. Hmm. 
So, I mean, Joe, I think one of the things we wanted to pick up on is that you were a prominent voice out of Silicon Valley who came out against this boycott. And you used a very specific term here, which was illiberalism. But, but you know, before we even dive into the definition of terms, I know you're somebody who's very well read in the classics. What was the situation, let's just lay it out for the audience, that felt you compelled in order to write this op-ed and, and really make some waves in the debate around free speech and, and technology? Definitely. Well, you know, it's funny because everyone thinks that everyone in Silicon Valley is liberal, and I wish that was the case. I consider myself to be a classical liberal in the original definition, and, 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 and it is actually becoming a very illiberal place. And more than becoming illiberal, a lot of this, you know, there's, there's this new culture that's emerging. I think the right way to think about it is moral culture, right? So I, I think this, this whole set of, like, we used to have an honor culture, and then we moved into what's more of a dignity culture. We don't do duels anymore. We let the legal system work things out. And there seems to be this whole new culture that's emerging, which is some sort of social justice or victimhood culture. And, and this culture just completely losing the lessons from a lot of our kind of our, our liberal past, frankly. It's an illiberal culture. It doesn't really understand. And I don't think kids are taught anymore in the last 30 years. You know, it used, it used to be you learned Western civilization as a history if you were part of our, the class of the elite in the West. And I think it was in the 1980s that Jesse Jackson brought everyone to Stanford and they ch chanted, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. And they just said, you can't teach these things anymore. And it's no surprise, 30 years later, we're no longer teaching about what it is to be a liberal. We no longer have a truly classically liberal education. And we no longer see the debates of our history from the last few thousand years. And so we have this new cultures emerging that are illiberal and that are missing the whole point on, on, on how liberal culture is supposed to work. And, you know, personally, I, I, I'm seeing this. I'm seeing tons of people around me who disagree with the boycott, who disagree with its clear aims. I don't personally love Facebook. I think there's problems with Facebook and social media we could talk about. But if you actually look at the people leading the boycott, you look at some of what they're insisting on, like they're just very naive about censorship and about free speech. And, and it's not even the people who agree with them. I have friends who run companies who signed on to this and they said, yeah, Joe, my HR, my marketing people, it was important to them and I don't really care and, and it, it looks good for us and we're kind of annoyed at Facebook for how much we spend on it. So I kind of went along with it because it doesn't really matter to me. And there's a lot of other people saying, you know, it's going to be a big fight if I go against this. And it just, it's just a good way to virtue signal. And there's all these things happening in our country. And I want to be on the side of virtue signaling and be part of it and be part of the positive movement. And otherwise I might get attacked and, and I don't want to be attacked. So it's just, it's frankly a lot of people who are, are cowards and a lot of people who don't seem to care enough about the values that built our civilization. And just everyone's going along with it. And I was kind of watching and waiting like, when are people going to speak up and explain how ridiculous this, this is? And, and no one did. It was a week into it. Like, this is ridiculous. We're gonna, I'm going to say something. Mm -hmm. So, Joe, you did everything we wanted in terms of being provocative early. I don't hold this position, but I want to push back from a devil's advocate perspective. Sure. You're talking about how an issue is, is that, you know, up until, you know, the 1980s, there were these strong classical liberal educations, the people yeah. at Stanford, Yale, Harvard, et cetera, really know what they were talking about here. People who are against this sort of perspective that I think you, Sagar, and I all share say that what we're really just mad about is that new people are in the conversation, right? Because yeah, it was true. Like Stanford used to matter a whole lot more when it came to sort of setting these terms of debate, but like, could it just be that we are just angry that the people, the broad mass of our politic are just not engaging in these same debates that we used to? I, you know, it's definitely a positive for society that we're no longer run by wasps. My dad's side is Catholic, my mom's side is Jewish. And if you go back two generations, obviously it wasn't as bad as other, other minorities, but we didn't have it very well either. We definitely weren't part of these conversations. I, I'm not arguing to have, have the wasps be in charge again from the, from the 50s. <laughs> but 
That said, there was something really healthy for a civilization to have shared values and, and that we debate and that we see the debates, understand how they evolved. If you look, I mean, you know, I'm not saying Rome was a wonderful place. There's lots of moral faults with Rome, but it was very healthy for Roman civilization to have everyone study some of the same people for literally several hundred years. And that, that kind of kept society strong and kept society on the same page. And if you don't have, if you don't study these people, you don't have those debates, that's a problem. And I'm not saying we should only study these people. I think it's great that we have a lot more diversity of thought, but it's not that we have the diversity of thought. It's that we're literally like not even studying these at all. These kids today are not aware. Adults today are not aware of the kind of habitat of Western culture and our intellectual heritage. And, and that, that just terrifies me because if you, if you throw that out entirely, then, then you, you're throwing out everything positive about our culture. And, and a lot of people are happy with that. They say, oh, the West is terrible. You know, I think I think they're missing a lot of things. If you say the West is terrible, I think there's a lot of things that make America positive, exceptional in a positive way. And, and if we're no longer acknowledging that, I mean, that that really concerns me. Absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more, Joe. One thing that you did say I thought was really interesting was you were talking about the apolitical actors within companies, the CEOs, people who are your friends, who were then approached by HR, their marketing people, and they're like, "Hey, yep. this is actually good for my brand." So this is what I think the most pernicious element of so much of this is that by tying it to making it look like a good PR move, this is how agendas really march through societies, if you will, right? And you're also somebody who sits on the board of a lot of companies. You're involved with much of this. As somebody who, you know, actually has to have, you know, may have reputational damage from standing for something like this, how is it that we could create and reform the environment such that, aligning, you know, being for free speech, being for a more liberal society or like classically liberal society is also good for American business. Cause I don't think that's the case right now. Well, I think, I, th- I think it is in some ways, right. You know, I, I, I think, I think there's a lot of people on the far left who've spent a lot of time trying to take over important institutions in our society. This is one of those things that you start sounding crazy if you talk about it until you actually dig in and learn more. But, you know, people like me who, have a certain amount of talents and have my views. I spend time building things, right? I've helped build like 15 companies. I helped invest in hundreds more and help them. And, and I'm really busy doing that. I don't have time to go figure out how to like put people into positions and kind of spend years and decades conquering institutions. But a lot of the people on the far left do. This is what's happened in our society is they've, they've very successfully put themselves into senior places in a lot of institutions, whether we're talking about universities, whether we're talking about media, and, and, and when they get in charge, or even this is true of a lot of big, you know, HR departments and corporations, when they get in charge of these departments, they hire more of the same. They're very much, it's like guild hiring. It's like, it's like Stanford recently put out this thing, like, dude, everything going on in our country, we have to make 10 more, like, special, special diversity hires, teaching everyone how to be woke. And it's like, it's like they're just bringing people in on the far left underneath them, basically, mm-hmm. to kind of reinforce their values. And, and they're very good at that. And so, so I, I think, unfortunately, I mean, I don't really want to, I like focusing on positive some things, but there is an aspect of the culture war here where if you do have certain values and you're not fighting to bring in people with your values and they are fighting to bring in people with their values, they're going to control these institutions over time. And these institutions are powerful. That said, these institutions don't yet control our society fully. And we should recognize we can speak up. We can have other views and we can succeed. It's easier for me to do that as somebody who's very successful uh, whenever I see someone doing that courageously, though, and, and thoughtfully, and I, I, you know, that biases me to be excited about that person. And I'll be honest, I had a lot of people reach out to me who are a lot more successful than I am, who loved my article and wanted to meet me after that. So, so I think it is a positive thing to signal and to stand up for our values. And I, I do, I, I do think we have to support people who share these values. So I have a 
question dialing on the business part of this. I think it's very fascinating. Part of what's driving these things, though, if if we're if we're let's put on our Marxist hats, right? You know, Marxists would argue that you know corporations, <laughs> these corporations are getting woke not because you know, they're run by magnanimous people, but because these things are better for the bottom line, right? I think of when Nike put Kaepernick in front of everything, their stock jumped. Why, why, why is this phenomenon happening? Because what SJWs also like, to, not even just SJWs, but center left people argue is that like, look, the market is rewarding these things. People want brands that are woke. People want brands that are leaning into these sort of things. So what's happening in the market that is rewarding people on a business side for these things? I don't, I don't know if people necessarily want brands that are well there's definitely some percentage of people that do there's definitely whether it's five or ten or twenty percent of society they're excited about it i think that the the issue is is that a big part of this like new whatever you're going to call this social justice victimhood culture a big part of it is saying all society is unjust and there's a lot of rituals that go along with that and one of the rituals is these is checking people's privilege and calling them out and attacking them and they're very good at all doing this in a very compelling and scary way and so, so they've, they've, they've managed to kind of shift the Overton window in their direction by being a lot more aggressive on these call-outs. And a lot of people in big institutions, I mean, institutions are naturally risk adverse. You get to the top by not being attacked, by not having something to get you in big trouble. And so a lot of these people for their career, their job is to be risk adverse and climb these places. And so in these big institutions, it makes sense that they're just going to be really careful to be friends with the woke people and to be more on their side. And so I think, I think, I think you just, you're just, you're just seeing like, it's, it's a safer choice. It's the less courageous choice, even if you disagree with it to kind of go along with it. And, and therefore a lot of institutions are going to virtue signal in this way, even if people running it don't agree. Cause, cause why take that risk? Why become a target for these people who are very good at targeting and taking people down? See, that's, that's the part that I find the most interesting about what you said earlier, which is you're like, well, I spend my time building things. Like I don't have time to plot, you know, this, this strategy kind of going forward. And the other thing is, it's not even necessarily plotted. It's like an ideology that fuels itself. And it's like you said, which is that once you have somebody in, in a position of power and they start to bring people in, then by and large, that becomes a culture that's inculcated. And if you don't actively fight against it, then that becomes a default. And that kind of brings me to Facebook kind of itself, right? Which is that Facebook itself has been, I wouldn't say, you know, consistent. I think that they have been by far, Zuckerberg in particular, the most forward leaning towards at least a more free speech friendly ideology, particularly in saying, no, we are not fact checking political ads, knowing exactly where that comes from. Could you talk about just as somebody in the business community in the, what the immense pressure that he is facing both internally and externally in that culture? Because yeah. I mean, some of the people watching this are, you know, from Washington, DC, it's not necessarily, you know, the most controversial thing, but they recognize something's going on in the culture. I don't think people appreciate how courageous what he is doing actually is. Yeah. People, it's, it's, it, 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 uh, that, that's a great point. It, it, it's, he's, you know, Zuck's in a very funny situation. People on both sides assume that their side is like the one that should be righteously angry at him and, and that he's kind of in with the other side. And so like a lot of conservatives just are like just furious at Facebook and, and, and you know, at least they were before this whole thing. And there's all these things they think it's like these, these like liberal, like left people out in the valley. And, and then meanwhile, the far left thinks he's in with the right. And, and, and it's just, it, it just, it just both, there's a lot of issues on both sides. But yeah, everyone really is demanding and demanding like you have to go along with our social justice culture. You have to basically censor all these things. It's not right not to censor them because don't, people don't, don't people honestly don't understand the core ideas of free speech. They think it's possible to just do like some kind of fact checking, and, 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 and you know don't realize how, how how kind of censorship 
evolves from that and how all the censorship is inherently political. This is something I think a lot of people just get very, very wrong, is that like censorship is political. Like human nature is like Aristotle, man is a political animal. It's basically impossible to start to censor what's true or not. Like it just, if you're on the left and you're censoring what's true or not, you're gonna be censoring stuff on the far right. And if you're on the right and you're censoring what's true or not, you're gonna be censoring stuff on the far left. There's there's all sorts of nonsense, complete nonsense. I mean, this is just like a thing I try to tell people, you know, back in the old days, our very first democracy, Athens. Athens had a rule that if you started to speak up and started to say that it'd be good for the country, to take wealth from the very rich and just take away from them and give it to everybody else, you would be banned from Athens because they thought that democracy would not work and would be really unhealthy because people just tried to vote to steal money from the rich people. They said that's the, the whole point of democracy breaks if you do that. And so literally you would be kicked out of Athens for advocating for socialism. I'm not advocating to kick Bernie Sanders and AOC out of America or to censor them. However, I think it is a very reasonable view that it's really dangerous. These are really bad policies and I see where they were coming from. And you, you just have to realize whoever gets in charge, there's like, there's different things you can censor and they're, they're dangerous to censor either way. And, and I, I can go and I don't know if people interested, like, I, I think it's crazy. I, I don't know if you're following some of this stuff with Kendi and anti-racism and stuff. Yes, yeah, and, we are. So it's like, I just read his book because I kind of want to know what's going on. And when you, when you read the book, there are some things that, that get you really pissed off with racist white people. And there's like stuff, obviously, and there's obviously stuff this racist and it's messed up in our society. And it's all of our jobs fixed that. I think the people who say there's no more racism, I totally disagree, disagree with that. However, he defines these frameworks that are just terrifying me because I'll, he'll, he'll define three types of people, segregationists, assimilationists, and, uh, and anti-racists. And segregationists was kind of the default view in the 19th century, which is that we're all so different, we just have to be apart. And it's, it's based on this very racist view of point of the world, that people are, are fundamentally different. And, and I think it's very bad, I agree. But assimilationist, he, he says that anyone who says anything at all about culture, is, the culture is being different. Like if you say that there's not enough black fathers, or if you say like anything at all, that, you know, to, to, to assault the culture, you say education should be more highly valued in these communities, that is a racist view according to him as well. You can't have any critique of the culture at all, and, and which to me is insane. I think this moral relativism. He says you're a racist if you say anything at all. So I agree that some things are a problem because of race. I'm sorry, because of racism, and some things are a problem because of culture, and there's a combination of these things, and, we, and I think you need to be able to talk about them with all cultures. I think all cultures have different things that are strengths and weaknesses, and he says that's just complete racist. You can't do that at all, and, and, and all these companies are going around now saying we're anti-racist companies, and which and by the definition of what Kendi's putting out, which basically means you, you're no longer allowed to say anything about cultures or else you have to kick that person out. You can imagine social media companies saying we're going to be anti-racist and we're going to censor anything that's not anti-racist, and suddenly we just can't even have this nuanced conversation anymore. I mean, this is terrifying to me. Can yeah. we, let's, 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 Sagar hinted at this earlier, but let's define some terms, right? Because yeah. I think defining censor is important, right? Because, and I think this is why this is such a dangerous debate, because I think what makes a lot of these things insidious is that there's like a grain of truth that things sort of come in. So for example, sure. there are people on Facebook and Twitter who say horrible, despicable things. And if we're talking about the public yeah. square, the language you use, they're people that I don't think should be, I, I wouldn't want them speaking in front of my house saying things that they sort totally. of say. Totally, I, I, you, you, block, you block them, you wouldn't listen to them. Right. Yeah. So, so what is, so for example, would you think, let's just do some case studies here. Saga, I know you have some too. So for example, are, are, if, when Facebook bans people for using like anti-Semitic or racist language, is that censorship? That's a form of censorship. It's a form of censorship for sure. Are you, are you, and how do you think that, how do you think that type of speech that we can all agree on this call obviously is bad? How should platforms that are trying to serve as public squares police or handle or accommodate this, the existence thereof? 
You know, it's, it, I, 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 I think it's a good question. There's definitely levels. I think the fact that we're each able to block people and not listen to them on these platforms is probably good enough. I think that there are funny jokes that are racist against Jews and I'm a Jew. And, and if someone wants to make one of those, I, I, and it, maybe it was made just for a certain purpose where they're making fun of something else. Like, I think that should be fine. I mean, I mean, I'll make Jewish jokes sometimes as a Jew and not because I'm anti-Semitic, but because there are some funny ones. If people want to say that, and maybe that offends some people, and, and but I don't think that should be censored. I think people should use their judgment. And, but, but, but I, you know, so I, I, I think, I think, I think it's the stuff that's illegal in my opinion should be censored. I think, you know, I'm on the board of Thorn. We had a meeting this morning. We helped stop child trafficking. We identify child abuse images. We get people to take them down. We, we, we find who put them up and go help save kids. Like that stuff, I think is like, that's a matter of legality and we should definitely censor child abuse images. Um, you know, there's, 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 there's probably a few other things, but, but in general, I think you should have open free speech and people should use their judgment about who they want to listen to or not. That's, that's my take on it. I like how you delineated between sort of speak, because the point is we're talking about free speech here. We're not talking yeah. about child pornography. We're not talking about like violent images. We're not talking about crimes. We're talking about things that under the first amendment are legal yeah. um, in other squares. So just a quick follow-up. I'm just curious what you think about this. What do we do? So I, I, I like your articulation of blocking people who are doing X, Y, or Z. But what happens yeah. if that sort of like, let's say like anti-Semitism like extends towards harassment right so like let's say that like you know louis farrakhan like so let's like let's mix up the racial yeah. categories here like let's say there's like this rapidly um anti-semitic campaign by nation of islam people against jews so like yes like obviously you can like block a person but there's this like cascading and organized set of targeted harassment there and this sounds like what's happening by a lot of it sounds like what's happening by a lot of kind of Bernie bros to billionaires. When I speak up on something on Twitter, and I will have hundreds of nasty notes. And some people will say, bro, the gas is going to leak in your house. And they'll say, like, they'll literally do things to like imply they're threatening you and your family. And, and of course, they're not censored at all for that. And so you got to be really careful because it's really easy to censor things for things you agree with. But then if you oh, I'm kind of on the far left, of course, it's your fault for being an outspoken billionaire. You deserve to be threatened by lots of people. Like, and it probably is the case when people threaten violence and harass, that probably should be against the rules. I think, I think threatening violence is different than free speech. Mm -hmm. so, so, but we just gotta be really, really careful because it's really easy to label one thing is not okay and another thing is okay because it happens to adhere to your political views. And I, I think censorship is just so dangerous because you always end up getting these points of view on it if you're not careful. Joe, I have an interesting question here, which is that the scenario you laid out about anti-racism, pervading institutions, ideology, I 100% agree. It's something that I hear from a lot of young conservatives kind of here in D.C. as to their fear of what the end state will look like at Twitter, at Facebook. Yeah, stopping nuanced conversation about, about important things, exactly. Right, and, but th that comes to the question of what do we do about it? Because this is where I think your you know, more libertarian views on this definitely clash with them because there's a growing consensus on the right that look, Facebook, Twitter, Google, all these other companies, they are completely, you know, they're indoctrinated with this ideology. The only yeah. institution that can save us from future censorship and a domination of the conversation as a government yeah. in an increasingly online world is the government. So and this is, this is, this to me, this is exactly, you know, if, you're, if you want to live in, go ahead. This is like the same mistake they're making with industrial policy too. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's the same, it's the same the, the idea that because we're in charge, we don't need freedom anymore. And we could just say what's right. It's like if, if the whole point of America in our government 
and of the way liberty works is that you assume someone you don't like is in charge of the power. You don't create power because you control it. That's not, that's like not the point of our country. You, you, you always have checks on power and you only create power assuming the people you don't like are going to be controlling it. So whatever these young conservatives want to create, they need, the, the whole point of America is they need to assume somebody like AOC will at some point be in charge of that power. And do not create it if you don't want AOC in charge of it. And vice versa. It's like that, that's the whole point. If you should assume someone much worse than Trump, if you're on the left, is going to have this power you're creating, is going to use it for whatever they want to do. And if we don't make that assumption, that's how we get to a really terrible, dangerous future where we're imposing things we don't want to be imposing. Because that's, that's going to happen. The pendulum is going to swing. And the whole point is you limit that power. So I, I think it's just a huge, dangerous mistake for the government to get involved here. And it's, frankly, it's not their job. And, you know, if we, we, we should start working to build alternatives to these companies if we don't like them. We should lobby these companies and try to push them to do things. As much as I disagree with the boycott, there's nothing fundamentally un-American about getting together and trying to push for your views and convincing companies to help you do that. I think both sides have a right to do that. So this is something, another interesting point you just made, because I hear the just build your own competitor from people all the time, except you're somebody who actually could do that. Because the most, uh, the most common you know, re- critique or the response is, well, that's completely impossible. These companies are just too big. They have a near monopoly on online communication. You know, the internet naturally, uh, the internet naturally selects, so to speak, for monopolies, as in they only want one search engine, one social media, et cetera. So what would that look like in practice as somebody actually in the industry? Well, it is very hard to build your own company. The way you'd be able to build your own company is if these platforms we're bad enough that enough people care. This is how markets work. Markets are awesome. Markets, if you actually have enough people who really care, who would rather use your platform, and listen, you know, Dave Rubin's building building a good one called Locals that I think is pretty cool. Um, I hear Parlay's doing okay. There's like, there's different things going on out there that are alternatives. I'll be honest, these alternatives are not going to grow really quickly unless Facebook and Twitter make a lot bigger mistakes because guess what? I still use Facebook and I still use Twitter and I don't agree with everything that goes on there, but they're definitely not censoring most of the people I agree with right now. If they started to, um, I would definitely leave and protest. If they haven't gotten to the point where it's worth leaving them. I mean, even Dave Rubin who's building locals, which is great and is a good community is also on Twitter, you know? And so, so it's like, it's like the market's really powerful. If these things screw up enough, then we will leave. But they're actually kind of forced not to go as far left as they'd like because of the market, which is a great thing. So this is, Joe, I think that's fascinating. I I like what you're implicitly suggesting, which is that we would know if Facebook, we would know if Facebook and Twitter were unusable for conservatives. There would be a market mechanism for that. Yeah, there'd be a million of us on something else. Exactly. So so here's the question though. What if there's massive market failure, right? So like what if, so for example, right, here's something the government can do. Part of the reason why I, I mean, I don't really use Facebook anymore, but part of the reason why I don't leave Facebook is I can't take my friends list with me, right? I can't, take like you know i can't take the things that are there with me i can't easily save my messages something the government could do or something that companies could do that would make this more possible is they could make it easier to port your sort of content between different platforms totally. so biology biology is a thoughtful person in the liberty movement if you look at his he tweets a lot and he tweeted something out quite a while ago where he got a gave a bounty for someone to build a program that would let you take all of your stuff off of twitter and he had a bunch of people competing for it and i believe he got a solution to that so in his so, so so the market already did kind of come up with that. I think it's great. That's a great point. So he 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 did that with Twitter, and I think I think that is possibly a fair point. Is there certain types of there's certain types of things governments can do to allow people 
to to take to take their own information and bring it places. I, I want to be very careful with how we do these things. I actually agree in, in healthcare. It's a great example. I think you should have a right to your own healthcare data through an API because that does that does promote a functioning market and it does kind of go against some of the some of the kind of big trusts that are very crony. So I think that's fair. I want to be careful. I don't think you should be able to force people to delete data. I disagree with that. I think the right to be forgotten in Europe is a right to go into someone else's database and, and, and try to make them delete things. I think that's wrong. I think it's anti-liberty, but, but I agree with you on some kind of pro-market things here. Hmm. So uh, this is where I find it really fascinating because it's about power, really, which is how a lot of people are thinking about it. And I guess if we're trying to balance a majoritarian society, I mean, you made the point is that conservatives have to act as if AOC is already in charge. We, we, we lose if we focus on power, right? The far left thinks hmm. everything should be about power. It should definitely, that, that, that's the whole this is like the whole difference. The far left is like pushing for power and they think everything else is bullshit and it's whoever's in charge is in charge and that's how the world works. And one group imposes on other and the other group imposes on them. And, and I think if we're gonna fight for the American idea, if we're gonna fight for like the core of, of who we are as a country, it's not about power, it's about values and principles. And so we, quick, have to, we, have to, we have to keep it there because if we don't, we're lost. So quick, mm -hmm. quick pushback. I, I, know you, I know you're more on the libertarian side, so I don't want to sort of put the whole conservative movement since the 50s on your back, right? But, but so just assume like that. So you could say that the reason why the right has basically lost every broad fight over the past 50 years is that it doesn't care about power. The right has lost the courts in terms of the outcomes it wants, the reason why the right has lost every single culture war battle, but it's gotten into the reason why economic policy has moved inextricably towards the left is because of, there's a disinterest in power. So I just find the argument about, I, I, I feel as if that, I think, I just, I just feel as if the concern right now isn't that the right cares about power too much, it's that the right doesn't care about power at all. No, no, I think, I think, I think, I think in general, to do politics effectively, you have to care about you have to care about power in, in, in that way you're saying. I think that's, that's fair. There's a battle going on. And if you're not fighting the battle, you're going to lose the battle. But I think the goal of winning the political battle should be to reinforce our values and principles, not to like capture government power and then use it in, and then use it in ways that are that create precedents that are very dangerous. The only, uh, I guess, what my pushback would be is if, you know, Donald Trump is president, the Republicans control the Senate, and you're saying, you know, we have to act as if AOC is in power. But if you look at anti-racist ideology that's pervading Silicon Valley institutions, and you look at our higher echelons of culture, you look at Johnson & Johnson, many of these other companies, Fortune 500 companies, which are pulling advertising off Facebook, aren't we operationally living in a world where she is in power already? No, even there's, we there's, not, there's not that many Fortune 500 companies pulling advertising off Facebook. We'll, we'll see the numbers for Q3. But mm -hmm. I, think, I think there's a lot of people nodding because they're afraid to push back on this kind of popular noise versus the actual business consequences. I don't believe the advertising went down very much in cost at all. I think it was very negligible, it's my understanding. So so I think I think the noise and the pop and pomp and circumstance is a little bit more on the left. But but I, I I don't think the majority of people feel this way. I think but I think the majority of people have forgotten how to stand up and speak for our values and speak for our principles. And listen, of course you control the Senate, you control the presidency, you should put in people who reflect our values and you know, Leonard Leo, who runs the Federal Society, or did for a long time during this administration, I, he was helping run the, the judges, and I think he did an amazing job. He picked a lot of people who were deep, principled constitutionalists. Like, like we were not putting in, thank God, to my opinion, we were not putting in a bunch of crazy people who were trying to legislate things on the right through the courts. We were putting in people who believed in protecting the Constitution and believed the court's job was not to legislate, and I'm really glad we did that. And I think that's going to protect us for a few decades. But, but, but I mean, the, the goal of being in power 
And the goal in general has to be to teach people about the values of America and about how this country is going to be a functional place for hundreds of years to come. And it should not be to start engaging and creating precedents in these kind of food fights that are, that are, that are against the spirit of how our country is supposed to work. That's, that's my take. So, so before we move on um, to the other sort of side of the liberalism debate, I just want to ask, why did you publish this in the Washington Post? Because just for setup purposes, right, if, if we're, we're all friends of biology here, you, you, there's a certain part of Silicon Valley, very online, very on Twitter, you sort of thinks all these legacy newspapers don't matter. You should use your own Substack. You have a Medium page. So like, why did you choose to put it in the Washington Post? Um, what was your thinking there? Well, you know, I think the Post and the Journal are both still very important and, and read by a lot of people. And I wanted this to be something that was discussed and seen by moderates around Washington. And I wanted, I wanted to be seen by enough people that would give them, that would give them kind of the backbone to, to speak up and say what's right to you. And I think by putting it somewhere that's it's, it's considered as mainstream and considered not really to be on the right, I think it was a healthier place to, the message to be heard by a lot of people on the moderate left. I think that's so fascinating, just the dynamic, because I've noticed this kind of as an outside observer is you're right. You know, a lot of Washington, as, as you know, is in group signaling, like it's in the Washington Post, which means it matters. Whereas you post something on your Medium page, like it, even though you could get 10 times more eyeballs on your Medium page than you could on the Post, it kind of just speaks to how exactly and what incentives that they respond to you. Do you think that it's possible to change that? Because I don't, in, in this way, it's an inefficient market. I think, I think it's about creating new brands. Brands are very powerful and brands matter and we're not gonna not have brands in, in 10 or 20 years. And, and so, you know, I'm, I've been looking a lot at building something called the American Optimist that is gonna, you know, talk about these things and hopefully teach people things and hopefully I can make that a brand and maybe in 10 years that becomes a brand that a lot of people listen to and care about in tech and policy because those are the areas it's gonna focus on. So, but I think all of us have to build our own brands and, and, or else we have to work together to build brands. And I, I don't think you could just do things on media and people talk about them as much. Yeah. That's, That's interesting. So That's counterintuitive. So, and you, you, you keep saying things that are interesting. So I'm going to keep going with this. Um, a lot of the work that you've done in your VC career and pre-VC career has been around government, right? So that's OpenGov, Palantir, all these sorts of things. You were someone who I think engaged a lot in sort of the post-2016 DC. This relates to Sagar's Washington, Washington Post point. Have, yeah. how, has, has the last four years changed how you think about government and how you should advocate and how these things work? You know, it's probably not very smart for me to have spent as much time building in government. Uh, I, there's a, there's a stuff that I've, I've made a lot more money on the non-government stuff. Um, <laughs> government, there, there, I, the government's fun for a couple reasons. From a business perspective, it's fun to go places where there's like a really big gap, like here's how it is now and here's how it could be if they were more confident in doing things correctly. And so there's all these processes in government, whether it's the regulatory state, whether it's their budgeting and reporting, whether it's, you know, how they're using data for a common operating picture for COVID. There's just like the way they're going to do it otherwise. It's just so bad that it's like really fun as a business person with competent tech people to come in and you're just, you're just 10 times better than anything else they have an option to do. And that's like, that's like a good sale. But despite that, it's just government's so hard and so slow and so frustrating and drives you insane. But it's like, but it's good. To, you've got to be in areas where you're much better. And then, you know, really from a mission driven perspective, which is at this point, once you, once you already have some success, you want to work on things that, that you really feel are doing something important. And you know, the, the mission of fixing government, if, if a lot of people who want to be philanthropic work on healthcare and education, and I, and I do those areas as well. 
But you know, government is just like such a big thing because there's just the biggest gaps in the world versus how it should work. And fixing government fixes healthcare, it fixes education, it fixes everything about society, right? It's a good fundamental thing. So, so, so yeah, no, I, I, I really, I really enjoy like the the mission and trying to get there. I definitely have learned, you know, government. I used to just assume everyone was probably pretty stupid I'd have to deal with. Maybe that's really obnoxious to say, but that was kind of the default. <laughs> Thanks for being honest. <laughs> so, yeah, that was the kind of default. You're not wrong. <laughs> well, no, here's the thing. There are some really stupid and annoying bureaucrats, but there are some really competent people there too. Almost every type of situation I've gone into with only a few exceptions of government is you'll have really competent, really well-meaning, really smart people uh, working alongside people who are not very good. And so, so you'll have in government a much higher disparity of talent. Most organizations, there'll be a bunch of superstars or a bunch of pretty good people. And, and it's just kind of like the, set, the strength sets the tone. And if they're people who are weak, they, they transition them. You can't really easily transition people in government. And so, so you tend to have like just a huge disparity. And what, what that means though, is you can find these allies. You can find people who are, who are really good, who really want the best for their department. And, and you can persistently work together. And it's, it's fun because you, because you, you find allies, you build missions and, and you start, you start to learn that there's like lots of systemic reasons why things are broken, but they're, despite that, there's still good people who stay there and try to make it work. And so, you know, I, I'm a lot more optimistic that we can fix government and make it better. If I were to be running an administration, I think civil service reform is the very first thing I would work on. I'm sad Trump never did it. So there's just tons of things to fix to create accountability. But that said, there's still lots of stuff we're able to do now. Mm -hmm. One thing I want to pick up on, I mean, kind of the theme of the episode is illiberalism. And one of the things you're talking about there is about a form of philanthropy where the business community might be working with the government and improving its processes itself, which implies patriotism. Now, I think that gets to something where I thought you made some pretty big waves last year, which you know talk, took a lot of eyeballs here in D.C. for people like us who've been focusing kind of on the China problem, which is the de facto, I'll call it a de facto alliance between a lot of big tech firms and the Chinese government and, and the lack of patriotism that we see through yeah. many of these companies refusing to do business with the US government or you know privileging one country or the other or trying to draw moral relativism between what's happening in Hong Kong and with Uyghur Muslims and you know protest movement here in the United States. How yeah. does your framework that you know your skepticism of the liberalism going towards corporate America and with free speech apply to a Chinese government alliance with some of the Silicon Valley biggest firms? Well, this is also, this is also a really hard issue. It's kind of similar, like you said, to the other one, because obviously it's not in people's interest to speak up and be attacked. And the CCP is very good at punishing people for, for doing the wrong things here. But I mean, there's, 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 there's a dialectic. It's, there's definitely still some wisdom to whole engagement philosophy. We obviously made some mistakes in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s when we thought we could engage, and we thought that they'd adopt more of these principles. As we kind of we kind of had this view that these principles are so obviously correct, they're just a natural consequence of success and of prosperity. Is that people will become more liberal, and that's obviously not necessarily the case. Um, I, I don't buy this whole cultural relativism. There's a, there's a, there's a lot of people who honestly think that the liberal values of America are just a cultural thing and that not, nothing's better or worse. And to, to me, that's just, you know, a lot of times they say you're being racist if you're attacking China and it's just a different view of the world. And to me, what's racist is to assume that human dignity is not universal and to assume that, that the, the need to check the power of tyrants is not a universal thing. So, so I, I, I definitely still believe these are universal values, but I don't believe as strongly that these universal values just naturally come about without some sort of pressure and some sort of organization. That, that, said, that said, I think there is a lot of good and we've done in the world by engaging with China. There's a lot of people we've helped. There's a lot of mutual wealth we've created. 
And, and there's definitely there's definitely some wisdoms not just cutting it off all at once. And so I, I think being too strong of a hawk here and, and is is, is, uh, is is dangerous as well. And so so like, well, on one hand, I'm horrified by the moral you know, positions of the CCP. And there, on the other hand, it's it's a tough question because you can create a lot of value engaging with them. And so I, I'm not going to. I'm not going to come down and say this is a simple choice because it's not a simple choice what to do here. Mm. I think what's interesting there is, I guess, how do we, let's bring out the political political philosopher within yourself, right? At what point is value just not worth it, right? At what point are we sort of trying to sort of put metrics to things that don't really matter, right? So for example, look, right, selling Nike shoes in China creates a lot of value, right? You know, turning a blind eye to Hong Kong or deciding that Taiwan will mostly be fine if it was controlled, that, that, that would seem to drive value. So how do you think about those things in that context? Because that's another place where I think you could argue there's a market failure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's definitely a market failure. There's, there's definitely a market failure where, I mean, even like seven, eight years ago, people very senior in China made it clear to me that my businesses were not welcome there. They would never be allowed to be dominant. They're never going to have top data platforms running any part of their government, their finance, their healthcare, it's going to all be internal to China. So they have those tariffs on us. They, they say we can't, you know, Snapchat can't go there and yet TikTok can go here. Obviously something is wrong, is wrong, A, with the business relationship. And then B, you're right. I think there is a, there is a moral, there is a moral compulsion at some point where like what happened with Hong Kong seems very, very wrong. I would, I would probably be doing a lot more tit for tat and speaking a lot more to our values more openly and more strongly. But I'd be doing that in a way where it wasn't just the US. I mean, I think this is, this is where like, I think people my father's age and Donald Trump's age just get this wrong. Like their view is so tied to the mid to late 20th century where the US is like this like unitary actor that's just like the whole world and nothing else matters. And I think if you're gonna push back on China in the morally appropriate way, you need to ally with 10 or 15 others. You need to get on board with Japan and with India and with, you know, Vietnam, even Vietnam potentially, although they have their own moral issues, but just all the other powers in the region. And you just say certain things are not acceptable and certain things will not, will not be accepted. And, and I, I would probably be doing that in a lot stronger way if I was in charge. Like if I was running America and talking to Boris Johnson, I'd be saying, let's start another free city like Hong Kong. Let's get a bunch of land nearby and let's make a deal and let's create a new charter city, you know, first and invite everyone from Hong Kong to be able to come for free and even give them a little bit of, a little bit of land or something. So there's, there's things like that we should be doing to push back and we're not at all. So that, that does bother me. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And I'm glad that you acknowledged also, cause this is something that drives me crazy about kind of the TikTok discourse, which is that, look, I mean, at the end of the day, it's an unfair business relationship, as you said, which is that you as a person who creates value in businesses is not able to do business in China. It's totally and asymmetric. And it's the fact that we allow, I mean, it's one thing to allow it to be asymmetric when they're poor as hell and they're literally people are nearly starving and they're developing. Like I totally get that fine. We're just desperately trying to get them to develop and assume they're going to become normal. At this point, there's like, they're like now emerging as a young adult you got to hold them to the law and you got to hold them to what's reasonable and it's cowardly not to. So that, that is a, that is a big issue. So as much as I guess I said, it's not straightforward. There are certain things that are straightforward and it should be made to be symmetric. Do you think it's it's straightforward to ban TikTok? Would it be fair for the U S government to do that? I think it would be fair for them to do that. There, there are, there are smart people who spend a lot more time on that than me. So I don't have a really strong opinion on the right way to do that. It's generally not good to do things without warning, without structure, without, you know, giving people ways around things if possible to make it fair. So, so, but, but yeah, just in general, if, if, if you're going to, if people are worried about Facebook and worried about meddling in our election, 
having, I mean, it's ironic because I think we're on Zoom right now, which says a lot of things through China. That's true. But but like having having a video where like what videos people see for tens of millions of our kids controlled by our worst enemy uh, is probably probably not very smart. It's like it's probably not very smart to let like you probably could make a can win or lose on TikTok if you wanted to, if you were China. And uh, if anything, what the, the crazy thing with TikTok is that it's actually more sharing conservative stuff right now. And I don't know if that's a natural consequence of the media form, because I haven't studied it, or if it's the natural consequence of the strategy because conservatives are in power and can ban it. And, and if you're, you're Donald Trump and you look at this, that's probably gonna help you in the election right now. And so maybe you don't ban it because it helps you in the election, which comes back to our power question again. Right. And who the hell knows what TikTok's gonna be showing if a far left person's running our country. So it just, it's, it's just, it's just, it's just it's a fascinating problem. It probably is not good to give China that kind of control of our media. I'm glad that you brought up the possibility that TikTok, despite the broader geopolitical concerns, could operationally help conservatives. I think it's a part of the debate about social media that's literally always missing, which is that I don't think conservatives who go after Zuckerberg, Twitter is a little different because Twitter is sort of far more left wing, but Facebook Facebook operationally helps conservatives, right? Because it gets around gatekeepers. If you yeah. if, if you go back, what, 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 I love how we're talking about history, but if you go back to the '60s, right, when you only have ABC, NBC, CBS, the predecessor to PBS, 100%. the institutions lock out other views, and, and, yeah. and I think people who are pro liberty and pro free society benefit from a plurality of views because you find new ways of describing and explaining things, and those, and when you have more knowledge and more information, that tends to ends up teaching people why freedom. And why bottom-up ideas work because the whole point is more bottom-up ideas that's that is what freedom is 100 yeah, i just think the right needs to acknowledge that so just yeah we, we said the theme of this episode was liberalism but another theme i'm hearing from you is that the american governing and business elite is full of cowards right like 100 percent. these people these people is yeah these people are just scared right now i mean because everyone's attacking them and they haven't been given these like strong values there's not these are not strong men and women these are not these are not the men of the greatest generation. They're not, they're, they're, they're a bunch of wimps. So, but this is what's interesting though, right? Because this goes back to my other question about what's driving this. So I'd like to hear your thesis about what different, and obviously like there's events, right? So the greatest generation, the great depression and World War II and sort of like rebuilding the world after that. What is driving this? Cause it's not as if like the men who stormed the beaches of, you know, Normandy were all well-read in the classics, right? It, it seems like, it, it's, I'm just trying to understand like where, what are the deeper roots of the elite failure? You'd be, you'd, you'd be surprised. I think a lot of those men were pretty well read in the classics, and if not all of them, a lot of them probably were had their peers that weren't. And, and I think the culture definitely was at least a little more shared back then. But 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 as, aside aside from that, there there seems to just be you know there seems to be a lot of worry about offense in our culture, and we've gotten really really careful not to offend people, and it's. I don't know quite where this is coming from. I think it's probably coming from the Marxist run our education system and, and like how they've kind of framed what you could say and what you can't say. And listen, like when, I, when we were kids, like, like we would say things like that's gay and that's probably not very nice. Like I learned as I got older and I have a lot of gay friends I work with and it's like, okay, you probably shouldn't have been calling something gay in the third grade. That's like, it's, it's funny, but it's not funny for her. Mm-hmm. So fine, there's no need to hurt people unnecessarily. There's no need to use, you know, offensive terms. At the same time, when something counts as like a microaggression against you, when something offends you a certain way, like what I would tell my kids or what I would tell people who work with me is when you're offended, that that's that's a chance for you to learn like what like, why did that bother you? And, and what is there inside of you that you can like make sure you fully understand so it doesn't bother you. 
and in like in like like being a victim, being offended is not something to be proud of. Like that's not it's not a good thing that you're offended. That's like a sign of weakness. You need to be so strong that these that, and you know who you are and you know how the world works that these people can't offend you because these people are, that's because beneath you that that would offend you because it's just stupid and you know it's not coming from a place that has any power over you. And it, at least to me, that would be like the way to deal with it within an honor or dignity culture. We used to say sticks and stones will break my will break my bones, but words never hurt me. I don't think they teach that to kids anymore. I think that's a problem. I think it makes you wimpy. If you if you say, oh, sticks and stones will break my bones and words will make me scream, cry, and have issues for the next month, then like that's, that's pathetic. You're a wimp. And that, that's what we should be telling kids. And and so I'm, I'm sorry, but this is this whole culture is like teaching them that they are vulnerable, they are gonna get hurt, these things are bad for them. I, I just think that's silly. And yeah, no, I completely agree. I think the meta conversation we're also having here is about norms. Like what are the norms in companies? What are the norms in society, culture? These all get set from the top down. How do you think, and this is something I've been thinking a lot about, you know, with this whole cancel culture debate and the, the employment kind of thing that you're talking about, which is that how can we marry, you know, better norms with employment, the way that we construct employment. So biology, you know, again, a friend of the show and, of, you know, podcast, and I'm sure of all, all of us, he talks, he raised an interesting idea about like a clause in contracts of like a cooling off period for cancellation, as in, uh, you know, if you had said something in the past, and you have 90 days, you know, the company has to wait 90 days before they can fire you. I, I, think, I, think, that's a great, I think that's a great idea to structure things that way. I think, I think that's something we should, you know, we should definitely think about encouraging our institutions as, 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 a, as a new norm that gets created. What's, what's really terrifying about the norms in employment, this is another one of those areas where the left's kind of captured, the very woke left has kind of captured things. Labor law is just insane. I don't know if you've seen these things. The labor law has just gone wacky. Like you, like you can't make someone uncomfortable in the workplace with your views as a leader, or else in California they may be able to like, like, like I don't send things out to my full team list right now, like because they're because like someone got uncomfortable about like a very normal, healthy conversation about things that were going on because they they weren't particularly they're like a very junior person, not particularly bright person, and so it's like and these people and they, they don't don't have a context on on the fact that there's different views that are respectable on both sides on some of the issues in today's world, and I learned wow. I'm actually in danger if people aren't comfortable. And it's good labor law has been written in a way where they can just go after you. So it's just, it's just, it, it is, I think Balaji is right about that, but I think all of us who are running these things need to realize we've kind of given up this area of labor law to the point that's totally insane and the left is just kind of broken. And you gotta be really careful. See, I think this is interesting because wouldn't that imply that the law matters and that the people who write the law should care about how law and labor law is structured? Law so definitely sure matters. Law definitely matters, but the right answer is not to like, get conservative Christians, for example, to get in there and to force people to have to, you know, go to church, you know, in labor law or whatever they would have done a hundred years ago if the right was in charge a hundred years ago on that. The right answer is to get in there and win the battle and, and, and put in our principles, which is which is that government should not be imposing these things on people. At least that's my that's my take on it. I don't disagree that there's important battles. I don't disagree we need to win these battles. I do disagree that we should win them. We should then try to push our, 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 our values that go beyond liberty, that go to kind of imposing our, our views on how people should live their lives. That's, to me, that's not right. See, this is so interesting because I think what's driving a lot of these fears on the right, right? Because obviously like no one knows Sagar or I as like, you know, rabid social conservatives, but we do talk to many. And yeah. for them, it's like, we're not debating imposing Christianity on people, right? Like that is a debate a hundred years ago. Like this is, we're trying to defend ourselves, right? Like, no, that's of course, what well, well, that's, that's a, and, and I 100% agree with that. Of course, that is a sign of a movement that, that, is, in, that, is, that is having to defend itself. If it was completely in control, there'd be some people arguing to, to impose some of these things and they'd be wrong, right? And so, and I think there are still parts of our country 
where people are in control and they are arguing to impose these things. And this is, you know, again, whether we're talking about about industrial policy or or, 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 or kind of opposing the rights view of censorship to stop the left, like I think both of those are really danger, dangerous too. So let's let's finish up this with talking with a quick discussion of COVID and where we see the world going. Because you've besmirched industrial policy a couple of times during this episode, so we, we must speak up. Um, Our brethren. It's difficult to, from my perspective how we can look at the initial inability of this country to produce masks or other critical uh, medical supplies and then just sort of it's hard to look at that and then say no we don't have enough industrial policy so I could see a world where like there's too many commissars right. where there's too many we're gonna do like you know Solyndra part 15 I get that but that doesn't seem to be the danger that we're in right now well Solyndra itself was like part 39 or something if you looked at it all <laughs> the last 20 years <laughs> but yeah, there's a uh, listen I think we probably can align on the fact that we both want it to be easier to manufacture things in America. There's actually a renaissance kind of just starting in terms of robotic manufacturing and making things much, much cheaper with, with a lot more automation that will involve people, but a lot more automation that's already kind of happening in a fast pace. We, we would like that to be happening in America. And a big reason it doesn't is thanks to really bad regulations and really bad setups that make it a lot harder to do it here. And I think, I think this comes down to immigration rules. I think this comes down to all sorts of the ways kind of environmental, uh, you know, rules work and all sorts of ways, lots of other regulators work. And I think, I think, you know, I think if we made it easier and, you know, if let's, let's do free economic zones, even like this is, it always annoys me talking about free economic zones in America because America itself is supposed to be a goddamn free economic zone. That's like the whole point. But, but you know what, maybe we need some free economic zones just to like, just to get some manufacturing back. And I'm totally aligned on that. We could, there's, there's the, the mistakes that people make and the, 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 the ideas I'm seeing proposed are just just such a just so bad to me and i just want to be really careful we're not just like throwing money at cronies like one of the worst things we could do in our government is is give money to cronyism and i've seen a lot of proposals that that's all they would really do and in, in my view so but but, but I, th- I think we should be aligned on it is important to manufacturing back i believe that that freedom would get us there if we, if we did it correctly here's an interesting case right which is intel Wait, this 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 case just came out you know intel this is according to bloomberg they're like they're outsourcing their jobs a huge decline for domestic manufacturers semiconductors which is a long time an american industry which we let in critical to national security and there, more and- the, 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 the dod argument for certain things intel doing certain things here is quite strong i i'm not i'm not opposed to the national defense argument that we need to have certain types of things be, be done here. I, I think I think that that's the one area where we'll probably agree on industrial policy is like, if you don't have certain things manufactured here, that is very dangerous for, for wartime. Mm-hmm. And so there are contracts we should be giving out for things on sh- on, on, on shore for the DOD because the DOD is going to need these things. So that, that, right. that part makes sense to me. And, and if that ends up influencing people to do more here, then, then that, that's fine with me. So it's, we, can, we, can, we can align on that. Makes sense. So on coronavirus broadly, uh, one of the things, the themes that we have here is that coronavirus, you know, much of this is just exposed, you know, kind of the, all of the bigger, the, the fraying holes within the economy, within society, within culture, so much more. The mess. Everyone's, everyone's unhappy and protesting, etc. Right. So how do you, how is this affecting the business environment for you as an investor and as an entrepreneur going forward? Like what are the holes that you see that you want to try and plug or opportunities and others that my oh, people might be? You know, it's actually, it's actually the, the, the biggest part of the answer is that a really good investor should be focused on the net present value of their companies based on their value 10, 15, 20 years out. So most of what we're doing, we're building something 
that's going to be really, really viable in 10 years. That's that's the whole point of venture capital. That's what we're doing. And so uh, the question is what the world's gonna look like in 2030. I am very worried about the far left in 2030. This is something we think about and debate about a lot. This could completely change the business environment. I am not very worried about COVID-19 in 2030. And so like the main question is how long does it last and can the valuable businesses get through it? Do they have enough liquidity? Do they have enough resources? Are they positioning themselves well to get through it? Now, of course, the world's not going to be exactly the same in 2023 as it would have been without COVID. Um, and that there are certain things there. Like the, the biggest impact on my business right now is this massively accelerating the shift to the cloud. People are going to the cloud faster. Because of that, there's all of a sudden, there's all these processes, whether we're talking about healthcare or finance or logistics, there's processes where there's data we have now in the cloud we never had before. So there's lots of really cool businesses you can build that you could not have built a couple of years ago. So that's very exciting for us. There's just there's tons of really cool things there that's going to help fix healthcare, help fix these industries. Uh, the other thing is that e-commerce, of course, is massively accelerated. Uh, I'm an investor, for example, as a first investor in Wish. Uh, Wish is the largest mobile commerce company. You know, we're you know we'll probably IPO for you know well north of 25 billion market cap next year. Uh, it would not have been nearly as big, you know, as quickly if we didn't have this situation going on. Like they've been around for a long time. They've accelerated a lot more because of this. And, and therefore, there's lots of logistics things accelerating too. So listen, this is, this is a great time to be a venture investor. I'm slightly guilty because everyone's having a tough year. and Everything, we're having record quarters in <laughs> lots of areas. Our hotel technology stuff's not doing well. But like, there's certain things that are really bad. But like in general, the dentist stuff did not do well. But in general, there's just like lots of stuff working in the tech world. And the, your main job as a great tech investor is to be looking five, 10 years ahead and not to get too distracted by what's going on right now. We're trying to avoid things that are COVID specific as investors. So my last question here is the big debate that I have with people on the right, which sort of, and your answer this determines whether or not you support President Trump or not, at least in my circles. Do you think it's possible that if Joe Biden resoundingly wins the presidency, America sort of calms down culturally, you sort of see a point where these concerns about sort of the far left and these sort of claims about Facebook and the public square will sort of go away or calm down? Or is this something that's inextricably going to advance no matter what happens in November? So the far left and the Marxists that are taking over our media, taking over our universities, taking over lots of parts of our society that we need to battle, they are definitely not going away. F full stop, they are not going away. The the frustration and embarrassment and political engagement from a lot of the moderate left is probably tied in part to the pandemic. Because like there's lots of ways that's gonna make you wanna go rally uh, and get outside and go crazy. And it's probably tied in part to Donald Trump. Uh, and I think these people, I mean, you, you can go back and read things people have said about Mitt Romney and you, and you, you don't know it's Mitt Romney, you assume they're talking about Trump. I mean, these people are always pretty nasty no matter who's running, I, I totally agree with that. At the same time, Trump does seem to have a special ability to kind of poke them in a certain way to, to kind of make some people on the right smile and make, make them really angry. And then the people on the right smile more. And, and, and it, it just, there's definitely a divisive energy coming from this president. So, so are things going to go back to normal? No, we're going to have a huge problem with the far left regardless for the next decade. It's something we need to fix and we need to figure out. Um, would things calm down a little bit with Joe Biden? Most likely they calm down a little bit. Very interesting. Joe, we really appreciate you joining us. So, so interesting. So thank you so much. Thanks. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Marshall. Good to see you guys. Thank Thanks, you. Joe. Hey, hope you guys enjoyed the episode. 
So next Tuesday, we're going to bring you our interview with Nathan Bashez. He's a really interesting person who focuses a lot on the business of media, how all these things like Quibi, Joe Rogan going to Spotify, how all these big business ideas actually deeply relate to sort of these ideas that we're focusing on when it comes to independent media and all this sort of content out there. So it's a really great conversation. As per usual, please rate us five stars on Apple Podcast. Share this with your friends. Word of mouth really is how you can help a podcast like this grow. And send us a written review screenshot to realignmentpod at gmail.com if you want to have your question read out loud on air and responded to. All right. I'm really, really excited to see those questions. We've been getting some really incredible ones. And so with that, we'll see you all next Tuesday. Next Tuesday.